Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Before we get into this episode with Peyton Shelton, I just want to take a second to thank our sponsor for the podcast, Houghton Horns. For those of you that aren't familiar, Houghton Horns is a family-owned business in Keller, Texas, and their mission is to spread the joy of music through providing the highest levels of product, services, and resources to the brass playing community. It's been over a year now since the COVID-19 pandemic shut everything down and we're still feeling the effects to this day. While it is possible to move about with a little more safety these days, it's still a good idea to practice being as safe as possible. In order to be able to serve their customers while acknowledging that need for safety, Houghton Horns has expanded their policies to include a 15-day money-back guarantee with free shipping on all new instruments and accessories. I've mentioned before that they have free virtual equipment consultations to help you make the right choice. I'll leave a link for that in the description and pair that with multiple easy financing options when you do decide which instrument is right for you. Terms and conditions apply. It's clear that Houghton Horns is making it much easier to test drive and purchase the best equipment during these uncertain times. At Houghton Horns, they strive to put service to the customer as their top priority. Whether you are a beginner student, a hobbyist, or a full-time professional, Houghton Horns can help you find what you're looking for. Go to HoughtonHorns.com for more information. Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and today I'm excited to be here with Peyton Shelton, teaches trumpet at Utah, and uh, he and I have been in touch uh, digitally in the past year, uh, and it's been great to be able to collaborate with him on a few different things, uh, but right now I'm excited to be able to have the opportunity to actually just get to know you a little bit, and hopefully my uh, and listeners will enjoy getting to know you a little bit as well. I have a memory of meeting you when we auditioned for Northwestern. Have we talked oh about this? Oh my gosh, I made you look so good. I made you look so Do good. Do you remember that? Were you- yes, you came in right after me. <laughs> I don't remember that. I literally bumped into you coming out of I remember uh, bumping into you. Barbara's I office. Yeah. I didn't realize it was like right after though. Yeah, dead was. I made you look so good and you got in and I didn't. That's how it works. <laughs> well, thank you. You're welcome. A lot You're of welcome. good things happen. You get scholarship after that. too. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I bet you got a scholarship too. I got a half Man, scholarship. Kid. You're welcome. See, that wouldn't have happened without me. <laughs> yeah, so. Right. Checks um, in the mail, right? Well, anyway, this is a this is a pleasure for me. I really appreciate you being willing to give me some of your time immediately after juries. Congratulations! <laughs> yeah, I am uh, still recovering, so it's it's great. I have the volume cranked so, because I'm a little dead from all the brass playing, so it's great. And apparently, it was your birthday yesterday. It was my birthday. Yes, I'm a ripe old age of 34. What'd you do? Sat on my couch in my basement and worked on my Midwest presentations. I'm doing a clinic at Midwest on Thursday this week. What's it over? It is connecting your voice and it's kind of utilizing like vocal pedagogy to enhance brass performance. Hmm, very cool. I'm collaborating with a um, colleague uh, that goes that te- goes to that teaches at Christopher Newport in Virginia. Our name is Rachel Holland, and she kind of like we connected through a mutual colleague that said you're doing the same research that she's doing. I was like, what? 
And so, yeah, lo and behold, after a year and a half of like talking about the project, here we are. We're going to Midwest tomorrow. Yeah, good for you. That's exciting. Yeah, yeah, bro. Hashtag tenure. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, I appreciate you giving me some of your time, and uh, maybe we'll talk of about course. some of that later. But, Let's do it, bro. But for now, I think we should just start with uh, you and young, uh, young Peyton, how I got into trumpet. And uh, just kind of your, let's just follow some of your educational and career path to where you are now. Yeah. Um, I think most of my life happened because I was born with a birth defect. And it sounds kind of weird and a little like dark. It's a very interesting way to start us. Tell me about it, right? (laughs) Folks, sit back, relax, and enjoy this. (laughs) No, um, I was born with a birth defect. And in your ankle, you have growth plates. Like most of your joints, you have certain growth plates. It allow like the, the joint itself and the bones surrounding it to grow. My birth defect is the growth plate on the inside part of my left ankle was not functional. Like it was just really weak. And I think in the summer between my second and third grade year, my dad was doing a a construction project around the house. And we have like one of those like, you know, you're from Oklahoma, like the storm cellar things. You open the doors up and you're like, get down the cellar, Um, that kind of stuff. (laughs) My dad was building one and stupid me, everything looks like a slide in a playground. So I was up on top of the the cellar top and loved sliding down the front doors. But he hadn't secured the doors and I fell all the way from the top of the cellar all the way to the bottom and slammed my ankle into the concrete steps at the very bottom. And I was able to walk, but I think that impact shattered that growth plate. I, I didn't feel anything bad about it. And as I started to grow up, obviously that age, you kind of hit a huge growth spurt. Well, what happened was my ankle started to grow crooked. And yeah, I know. Uh, for those listening to podcasts, Ryan's face is like really contorting. Um, but yeah, so it started to grow crooked. And Lo and behold, my parents are like, what is wrong with your ankle? So I went to an orthopedic surgeon, and they decided to take a piece of the good growth plate on the other side of my ankle, transplant it into the other side, the broken side. Well, lo and behold, because of the birth defect, that when they tried to transplant the, the piece of the active growth plate, it shattered. So they had to pretty much break my whole leg and put a metal plate and nine screws in it, and it still exists there today. And because of all that, um, I didn't do sports in high school, in middle school. And I kind of like, well, what am I going to do now? I can't do like anything active. So I joined a band and that's what kind of started it. So by happenstance and medical mysteries, I I play trumpet. So yeah. And um, yeah, kind of my entire being was I I felt good about trumpet and I just kind of moved through all the steps like we normally do. I mean, how many people have you had on your podcast that said like, I was just good at it. So I kept doing it, right? You're the very first one. Oh, welcome. You know, <laughs> no, I, I got to be this. Yeah. It's a pretty common story. I mean, I think I was even thinking about my own, you know, my own story and how I sort of had a knack for it. I mean, I wasn't necessarily incredibly gifted, but, the, you know, I felt like I had a pretty good sound, like kind of right out of the gate and I enjoyed sure. doing it. And I think the thing that kept me going uh, beyond a number of things was like people were like, you sound good doing this. There was a level of like that. Like I had a place in the world of this thing oh I gosh, was good yes. at. But, you know, I mean, we were, we can probably get into it later, but that had unintended and unforeseen consequences later on in life. I think I know where you're getting at. I, I totally feel that. But yeah, like in middle school and high school, I was just good. I'm using finger quotes, good at trumpet, like for a middle schooler. Yeah. Um, it wasn't Texas good. It was, it was Southwest Virginia good, which means like I knew all my scales and that was about it. Um, but either way, yeah, I got to high school and I kind of fell in love with it. My, my high school band director, uh, 
I wanted to do what she was doing. Like she made me excited about band and I was like eating up all these stupid like band recordings from North Texas CDs and just being like in my car as a high schooler driving through the parking lot listening to drum corps and like Sousa marches and like Maslanka symphonies. It's like what a stupid nerd I was looking back on it now. <laughs> but like no wonder I didn't go to prom. No, it's fine. But I um <laughs> just going to leave that one there. <laughs> just leave it. Just yeah, leave it there. Just leave it there. No, but, but in, at the end of the day, like – I wanted to do what she was doing. She made me excited about band and music. And so lo and behold, that's kind of started my journey. So I went to Virginia Tech for my undergraduate for music education. And my first trumpet teacher was John Adler. And he looked at me halfway through the my sophomore year. He was like, hey, you know, you're a little better than you think you are. And of course, at that time, I was like, what? I could do music for like performing? Of course. And then... I, lo and behold, started that track, and then I went to Miami for my master's with Craig Morris, and I was his TA, and did some New World stuff while I was there, and then did my doctorate with Jim Thompson and Eastman, and bada-bing, bada-boom, your boy's in Salt Lake now, so. Can I ask you a question? Of course you can. Are your, are your speakers on right now? No, do you hear them? Like, is my voice coming through speakers as well? It should, no, it shouldn't be. Okay, it's fine, check. just making sure. I feel like I can hear my voice. So. Scarlet, Scarlet, Scarlet. Check it now. Okay. Test, test, test. I just, I just want to make sure it's not coming in through the mic. No, it, it shouldn't be. Did you hear it in the mic? No. I'm just making okay. sure. I love it. That's great. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because you have, I, want, I don't want to say like a quote normal path, right? Because there's no such thing as that. But, Correct. you know, you have the path that I think a lot of people would call normal or straight, right? It was like, here we go. I decided, or I like doing this thing. I'm good. Someone told me I could pursue this thing. And then I did educational path, educational path, educational path. And now I'm teaching. Um, and I'm sure it was not that easy along the way. So yeah, yeah, yeah. In so many ways it wasn't easy, but I mean, you're, I guess you're exactly right in your analysis. Like it's a pretty standard path for a lot of people who are in this world. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious then, you know, what were some of the things that you possibly struggled with, or do you feel fortunate that you didn't have, um, at least at that stage, I'm assuming at some stage in your life, you've felt a level of struggle, but you know, either you felt it there, what were those things? Or if you didn't feel uh, a lot of struggle and it kind of was just like, you're following a path, uh, take us through, take us through that. I, in a lot of ways, I am fortunate that I really didn't have to struggle too much. Um, the thing that I that I struggle with a lot was my family was not very well off growing up, so a lot of the financial burden for education, uh, finding like quality instruments and stuff that kind of was on me. Uh, I mean, we, I grew up in like a quasi farm growing up. My my grandfather we had cows, we sell, sold them for kind of like like meat. Um, but my dad was a master electrician, my mom was a bookkeeper, so it wasn't like we were just rolling in cash. And I was able to go to like summer festivals and stuff like. A lot of the peers that I saw on, like, you know, once Facebook was getting started, you could see, oh, they went to they went to this summer festival, this summer festival. I was like, well, I can't afford that. I had to go back to my hometown of Virginia and work at a window factory with my dad just to make money to pay, you know, rent for for school during the school year. And that's just how it was. Um, I felt like, in a lot of ways, I had a really good setup when it comes to like just the trumpet mechanics. Um, there was obviously things I needed to work on, but like the struggle came with me fighting myself a lot of the time. Um, my expectations of what I wanted to do, uh, what I was sounding like, what I, you know, what I dreamed and hoped for myself. The struggle was just me fighting 
my own personal expectations. And that's, that's still a thing that I deal with now. I mean, you mentioned it a, a second ago. It's like, you know, there, there's, there's, there's a little bit deeper things that go on with it. And I think music in a lot of ways has a lot of avenues to cause you to uh, reflect differently on who you are, what kind of product you produce, what others' perception of you is, which is a big thing that I have to deal with in my own personal study. Um, yeah, but like I think the struggle that I had growing up was a lot self-inflicted. My undergrad 200 teacher said, you, you place expectations on yourself that far surpass what you were actually capable of. Isn't that how we get better though? Like, I feel like that's a common way to think about getting better is you you sort of don't have this way of saying, well, here's my ability level right now. And I have this process that will continually challenge me over time. It's like, I have to think of this thing that's so far away and so huge. And I have the expectation that I'll be able to get there someday. And that's what's going to drive me and motivate me to move forward. But like, it seems anecdotal at best when as a way of proving that that's a good way to do it. You know what I mean? Like people who No, have, you're exactly right. Yeah. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on how you managed then thinking too far ahead versus like that kind of was a motivating thing for you. Like how did, how did you manage all those types of things and find a better place to, or a different type of motivation maybe? I think for me, managing this kind of self-inflicted uh, struggle in a lot of ways was, was a blessing and a, and, and a, and a demise in a lot of ways. The the blessing, you're exactly right. It motivated me beyond um, a lot of my peers because I, I had expectations of what I wanted to do. I mean, if you told me, I was talking to somebody the other day about this. If you told me my freshman year that I would serve as the principal trumpet for the Eastman Wind Ensemble um, sometime later in my life, I'd have told you, dude, what you smoking, bro? There's no, there's no way I'm going to be that and then be on CDs with the Eastman Wind Ensemble and serve as their principal trumpet for the for that that amazing group that I was listening to in my undergrad. Um, but now I look back on it, I'm just like, I, yeah, I did that. That's cool because I worked really hard to do that. Um, and I'm not saying like my personal struggles was the only thing that brought me to that path. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time reflecting on how I wanted to practice, how, how I wanted to sound, like all these things. I mean, yes, I mentioned that a lot of my growth was self-inflicted a lot of ways because of the expectations. But I don't think the expectations that I had at that time ever included what I ended up doing. I think when my teacher was was saying that I had expectations that far surpassed, I was just putting like, oh, don't miss any notes. Mm kind of expectations on it. And, and sometimes music's not perfect. You can try to make it as perfect as you want to, but it's never going to be as perfect. It's never be flawless. And I would get down on myself about stuff like that. And I think that that is a big, big, big thing that I had to deal with when I was younger, especially. Do you think there's value in trying to pursue perfection or do you think a different metric is, is better? I think it's a double-edged sword. I mean, the value in pursuing perfection is that you are refining yourself to a point where you can potentially say you're infallible. And I think it's, there's a lot of beauty in that. But because perfection is sometimes in your own eyes a sliding scale that you'll never be able to achieve, it also can be a little toxic too. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've certainly... It's very interesting. I feel like when I was younger, I was just like, well, I'll never be perfect. And and perfection almost doesn't exist. And so I'm not going to entertain conversations about what it could be like to move closer to perfection because it's just not possible. But sure. now with these systems that I've developed, I'm entertaining those conversations and they're 
there's a different level of frustration that I experience now because you can kind of get not like, again, I'm not talking about literal perfection, but you can get close sometimes yeah. to like what you hear in your head and you're like, oh, this is cool, but it's not this, you know, because we're humans, it's not a consistent effort. And so sometimes it's like, gosh, I'm happy with that. And other times it's like, I get frustrated because it's like, why can't I do that? Literally every single time I play the instrument, I should be able to do that. Like as if I'm a robot, you know, it's kind of why I ask if that's worth pursuing because for me it's totally worth pursuing but it is a frustrating uh, endeavor to take on at least in my experience i think like i think you're exactly right if it if it's a goal that you want to pursue i think there's a lot of beautiful motivating factors and things that you can check off the box in terms of like your personal practice um but if you you establish this idea of perfection in your head and you don't achieve it how does that affect you and for me that was the biggest part about establishing perfection or what it could be. And so like when I did meet that that goal, how did it, that impact me personally? Did I think of myself as a failure? Did I think that I didn't practice hard enough? Was I just too rough on myself when I didn't meet that checkpoint? And that's that's why I'm I get a little cautious about using perfection, like saying, oh, I'm achieving perfection. Um I like my undergrad, he's like, establish expectations, establish just things just a little above where you want to go. Um, and that way, when you meet those checkpoints, if you surpass them, fantastic, then the sliding scale continues to move further. Um, but that way, you're not looking so, so far ahead of, uh, ahead of yourself of where you're able to do. Uh, you're able to meet goals. And having these goals met, I, I've kind of used it with my students now. It's like having these little micro goals allows you to stay motivated. Oh, man, I, I just played a G. Oh, heck yeah. Hey, let's keep going to A this time. You know, mm -hmm. micro goals are really good for things, especially for younger students. Probably even for me, if I was smart enough, I'd go back and tell younger Payton, hey, establish micro goals instead of just like being like, cool, this performance needs to be what Hokan does. Yeah. Which is not, again, as you say, it's not a bad thing, but it's like at a young person's age, how do you deal with that negativity when you don't achieve that goal? Okay. Oh, we're going to follow this line of logic. You have a student who's, who's like got a high expectation of themselves and they haven't realized that expectation. How do you, what do you say? Let's say they have a concert and they worked really hard and they felt prepared. They did everything right, but the concert itself, for whatever reason, uh, did not go as well as they had hoped. How, what are you, what are you trying to encourage them? What are you trying to say to them to help them frame it in a way that's not going to, you know, True. be a weight on them for the rest of their life. <laughs> Most of my stuff that I deal with my students is is centered around this idea of like I'm I'm more interested in the journey rather than the the end goal. Um I mean you mentioned earlier today we we just got done with with brass juries. In a lot of ways that is that is a culminating assessment of your progress in the semester. Now there's validity to having stuff like that, but it almost seems that we should have in a more healthy environment, micro juries throughout the semester that are assessed by faculty because that way you can see the progress of an individual from the start of the semester to the end of the semester. And you're not just seeing sometimes students will walk into the room, especially in a larger school of music, and you'll see a student, you're like, who is this? I've never, do, do they go here? And and then you have to assess them on the dot. And now, thank goodness the juries are not like the the, the grade that horn teacher X or tuba teacher Y gives your student is their grade. Because there's a lot of culminating factors that that student or those teachers don't understand that students have been going through. That student could have had a death in the family that happened through the semester. And so or or like COVID-19 happened to them. And it's like all these different things that could impact a student's progress. And so for me, how do I deal with with students that have high expectations? I make sure we try to focus on the journey 
hey, how did you sound last week? So we do recordings each week, and we go back and listen to them. See, see how much you've improved just in a single week? Yes, the concert didn't go well, but that is a single moment in time. Can you go back and play portions of that concert right now without having, you know, the rest of the band around you and it sounds great? Yes, then you have improved. You have gone through the journey of developing the skills or the progress that you need to culminate in that performance. It just didn't go that well. So I think like I try to focus on that journey, that that kind of like progression through the different stages and instruction that we give rather than saying, all right, guess what? This recital's coming. If you miss a single note, you're failing. You know, that that's a yeah. stupid expectation, but you know, it's it's rather than being end in result giving, I'm, I want you to focus on what you've done. Yeah. So then, you know, to play devil's advocate, which I, I totally Ooh, agree with that perspective, but I to play devil's it. advocate a little bit, like that is how long does someone focus on the journey without some sort of realistic expectation of the end result becoming what they want, right? Because this is, I was just talking about this with Kathleen, my wife, um, mm -hmm. this idea that like, yes, the journey is wonderful and the process is great, but like, how long does someone do that before they realistically are like, I'm not ever having the outcomes that I want? Like, is it my <laughs> fault? Like, you know, like, what's this? I mean, I'm not asking what's the realistic expectation of the length of time. It's just how do we balance? Like, at some point, an end result is ne uh, that we desire is necessary. Are we just assuming that following the journey will always get you there? Or, like, where's the balance? I mean, that that is a tough question. You're exactly right. I mean, I guess in many ways it depends on the person. Uh, how determined that person is. What What is the perseverance that person's willing to go through to have something meet their ends? Um, I know for me, I have always been a very driven person. Um, there's several people that I went to school with that are, are looking in, looking to, to dive into higher ed. Um, and there's factors in their preparation and how, and how they kind of impacted their, their time in whatever degree program they are. Um, they weren't, they weren't focusing on things just beyond what was in front of them. It's like for me, like in, in higher ed, there's three, a lot of times there's three factors that go into your job. It's teaching, service, and research. And for me, when I was doing my doctorate, I was trying to focus and show that I was able to accomplish all three of those factors while still being in school. So technically, like universities would look at my, my CV and be like, wow, this person is already doing teaching at, as, at the collegiate level, like being an instructor of record. This person is already doing research. They're already like writing articles for either for ITG or whatever it may be and service. Oh, they're serving on this committee for ITG or something for NTC or some kind of community organization that shows that you're accomplishing those three factors. And I think just being driven helps helped me accomplish the goal of being a teacher in higher ed and but that's just me I'm, I'm a very driven person for someone else who may not be as driven i think the assessment of the journey like when you you get the final product okay what went wrong what went right being able to label things in that final product and then go back and enhance or reassess or refine the things that went wrong for the next time but that goes back to the crux of your question how long do you wait before you give up? And I think that's kind of dependent on the person. Like, how much do you want it? I mean, Craig Morris, when I was studying with him, he, he mentioned that he took like 70 or 60 different auditions uh, before he landed his first job. I mean, half of the population would probably give up before that, but he kind of persevered and pushed his way through it. So that's a, it's a big thing. I mean, he's an individual that took 70-some job auditions before he landed his big one. Me, I had 52 college teaching auditions or applications I filled out and submitted before I landed a research one that I wanted. 
And so it's just like, it's, it depends on how much you want it. So do you think there's any way around the need to be driven and to do those types of things to be successful at that? Or is it like to some degree, everyone's going to have to, for a period of time, embrace that kind of driven nature? Well, that goes back to the question of like the music world being tough, right? In, in order to survive in this world where we are objectively looked at and critiqued and, and judged on everything we do, a person in so many ways has to be a little tough, has to be driven to make those, those changes in your life, right? I mean, you got the job you have because you practice your butt off to get it. And how many auditions did you take before you got Alabama? Uh, Indianapolis was my ninth audition. Mm-hmm. And Alabama, I think, was like my 15th or 16th. And then now I've taken like, you know, 24. I haven't yeah. advanced. Since I had Alabama, I haven't advanced out of the prelims. And like the last, but do you, like six. do you feel that you are like, are you like lacking motivation? Cause it seems like watching you on social media and stuff, it seems like you still have a lot of motivation, but your motivation is intrinsically given to you in a different manner. I'm sure than what it was when you're doing your master's, right? Very much so. So like, do you think, sorry, I mean to turn the tables on you like this. Ha It's your podcast is mine now. <laughs> um, but in so many ways, like, do you think that your, your shift in mindset is impacted by the change in expectations you had for yourself? Um, I mean, I went through a long journey to get to this point here. Sure, sure, sure. Um, I mean, yeah, the answer is certainly yes. My desire to get better right now has a lot more to do with my desire to be able to explain it to other people than it is for myself. Sure. Because I've sort of moved, I basically like, in some ways have moved past it. In some very real ways, I have not moved past it at all. It's still like, I want to be like the best in a world where like everything is subjective, right? Sure, of course. But, you know, that that's that drive is still there. It's just, you know, I, I've removed or released, I guess would be a better word, this desire to have it be in uh, applied in a very specific context of a top five orchestra. I've released that. And so, um, the, the, you know, I don't practice out of like fear of will I ever reach this thing. I still am like, sometimes I have doubts if I'll achieve whatever amount that I want to achieve. But I've released this idea that I have to achieve that in order to be consider myself as having done something worthwhile, if that makes sense. So you change your expectations. So like, yeah. like going back to like talking about undergraduates, like but, if I'm going to make this jury performance like like Hook on Hardenburgers, you had to change your expectations to say, no, 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 it needs to be X. It needs to be Y. Yeah. So you kind of like lowered your expectations, not not to put it bluntly or even in negative terms, but like, you know, like you, you, are, you are changing the outcome. Yeah. And now you're reassessing the journey. It also came as a result of it not working out the way I wanted it to. Sure. So- that's a pretty important point, bro, though, right? Like, that's a really important yes. part. If everything would have worked out the way I wanted it to work out, I would be able to believe that the way I saw the world was the right way to see the world. So it's only by virtue that things have not worked out the way I initially planned them to work out that I'm able to say, well, I changed my expectation. Basically saying it wasn't my choice. I mean, it was my choice, but it wasn't something I wanted to do. It was a thing that happened and I was unhappy and being like, well, 
this sucks. I don't want to feel like this, like a, whatever else. And so the, like I said, the motivation comes from now literally just wanting to like test these programs and be like, Oh, is there something here? And like, how can I share these ideas? The motivation is very different. But like I said, there's a part of me that would have preferred if I just never hit any roadblocks and I was, you know, principal of X big orchestra and everything sure. that I ever wanted would have been handed to me. But that's like not, I mean, that there's a part of me that wants that, but that I'm glad that part of me is not actually in control of what happens in my life. I think that what you just said brings up a really good point where it's like, because you didn't meet your expectations, you were forced to reassess your expectations. And I think in so many ways, that is, that's a beautiful sentiment to students too. Sometimes if you have expectations for a performance, it's often better for you to fail at that performance so you can reassess what you are doing to have a better understanding of what your real goals or what your real expectations can be so that you have a greater uh, element of growth. Totally. But you have to commit fully to Correct. something for you to be able to walk away and reassess accurately. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Oh, I mean, this is like things I think about all the time now. Um, and it's, I basically feel like to some degree, it's platitudes to tell people to, oh, just keep going. It's totally worth yes. it. You know, I, I don't know if I agree with that. You know, yeah. I think everyone, like you said, has to assess that for themselves. And I think there are, there is, you know, the other thing that I would, I'd be curious for your thoughts. I mean, this is obviously why we're talking, but I, I think sometimes we missed, we miss this overall perspective that like music is something that's supposed to enrich our lives. It's not supposed to be this thing that gets us money. And so obviously it, it can be a career. Yeah. But like, you know, I, I feel like sometimes we should just be encouraging people to remember that regardless of what happens in our life, a musical instrument is something that can stay with us and, and enrich our lives. And, you know, we have the chance to become better and better, whether we are full-time professionals or not. And so it's valuable to learn the process of practicing and getting better and reassessing and setting new goals and all that kind of stuff, because that's something that can follow you throughout your entire life be curious how you kind of try to um, share that with your students and help them see, especially at such a young age, like they're not probably thinking this way. I'm reflecting after all these years, but how do you try to convey this information to, to students who might not be quite so thoughtful about it at that stage in their life? This is a big conversation that I'm actually getting ready to have with some students. Um, because when students come into college, a lot of times their, their thought of what they're doing is I'm majoring in band. And of course, I'm only speaking for like the winds, brass, percussion area stuff because they had such a wonderful enjoyment of that experience in high school. They're like, oh, my gosh, I, I love doing this. I want to keep it going. I want to do this in college. And then you get to college and you realize, no, 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 no. this is actually prepping you for a career in this. Uh, and there's a lot of debate as to are we really prepping them for career? That's that's debatable. Talk to me after I get tenured when I have a little more freedom. <laughs> um, OK, but anyways, um, yeah. So then students come in and they're like, what are you talking about? I have, I have to practice X number of hours a day to get better. Uh, what do you, what do you, etudes? What are etudes? I was, I was coming here just to play band pieces. And, and it's, it's often a giant like slap in the face when you realize there's so much more behind what it means to major in music um, than simply just sitting down in symphonic band every day after the lunch period with your friends and playing some like Tekeli or some Merrick Whitaker stuff. Like it's just... It's a big sticker shock for a lot of students, and some students have a difficult time coming to terms with, this is not what I thought it was going to be, and how do I restructure my expectations for the program? And a lot of times for me, it's 
it's getting to understand, all right, these are my expectations for you. These are my expectations uh, on a national level or whatever, um, kind of like a, a general plane, if you will, like what you need to do in terms of your performance level to make sure that we can we can progress you through these different steps in your degree program so that when you leave, you feel that you have actually improved well enough to either jump into the world as an educator or um, jump into the world to perform more or continue on to another degree path. Um, and that's a, that's a hard conversation to have with kids because, as you mentioned, like the, there's, a, there's a love. There's a sense of like that beautiful freedom that music brings people. And obviously, we're older, we're a little more hardened with it. We know that, the, yeah, okay, I still love playing trumpet a lot, but sometimes I hate it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'm like, okay, I don't want to play today, but I force myself to do it because it's what I have to do for my career. Uh, and those kids are like, I'm not playing today because I, I just don't feel the move. I don't feel moved to do it. But now they're developing these skills to go into this career. They should be, they should understand the expectations of them not stepping into the practice room. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's it's a tough conversation, Ryan. It is a really hard conversation because it's it's a it's a it's a shift in expectations again, man. We should talk like Pee Wee's Playhouse. We if we say expectations, <laughs> we both have to go wow and like raise our hands. I think it's pretty great. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's so much wrapped into the idea of of expectation. I mean, I think <laughs> expectation is like what causes <laughs> sorry like unhappiness essentially is I have this idea of what I want to have happen and it doesn't happen. And it's like, well, I mean, it's like how much of our lives do we, how much of our lives is what we decide? I mean, there's a narrative out there that's like, you just basically make whatever you want to have happen. Yeah. I don't agree with that. Yeah. I think you can, I think I agree with a portion of it that says you should try to like, create whatever you think, you know, that you should be in the world. I think there's times that maybe that will lead you towards something that you more want to do. But I think there's a whole bunch of, you know, there's a whole bunch of different opinions out there about how this should go or how that should go. And if we're sticking just in the world of trumpet, you know, winning an audition, you're going to have nine people on a committee or orchestral audition. That's my, obviously my thing. He's like nine, maybe people on a committee. Everyone's got a different opinion or idea of how something should go. So you, you may come out there and do something that's objectively great and not win the job. And like your expectation was, if I prepared this way, I would set myself up for doing well. But then you don't even advance out of the prelim round. And you're like, oh, I bet I did everything right. And it's like, well, I, now I'm unhappy because the expectation was to do well, not I'm going to prepare and I'm going to do my best. And that's just the expectation. So it's almost oh. as if setting the expectation ah, low <laughs> is the right way to go and that way you're like pleasantly surprised if it goes well and you're just like okay if it doesn't go well that's kind of you know there's something to i think trying to set some sort of idea or goal where learning something is a major component of the value of it is a good idea now but i'm gonna play devil's advocate on you again going back to a statement we had in the beginning of the podcast if you set it too low are you really trying to strive for like this as, as far as you can are you really trying to reach for that goal and then that's and for me like before you answer like that's that's a double-edged sword i deal with mm-hmm. like how to what extent do we establish expectations do we, do we do we do two all right this is short-term long-term do we do like obtainable not obtainable i mean how do you divide it for if you're working with students in that same manner yeah i like short-term long-term I like long-term to orient the work you're doing in a certain direction but short-term sure. is like related to what i'm actually capable of doing right now I think that's fair. It is. I, I think. I think in a lot of ways, 
it it depends on the student and and my pedagogy in in the deep part of what it is it's it's i use this word are they flexible and meaning like i don't prescribe one thing for every student it has to be different because different students are at different stages in their lives they have different expectations for themselves like some students oh i want to be a studio musician okay then we have to do x y and z all these different things oh i want to teach high school band great i'm still going to push you to be the best person you can but your long-term expectations are way more obtainable right. than being the next Wayne Bergeron. Right, right, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's just like, I, I think you're exactly right. If we, if we establish two separate criteria for expectations, some, either semester, like kind of like talking about leading towards the jury, do we meet those expectations in terms of like what we are able to do? Yes, the final assessment didn't go very well or it did go great. Uh, did you meet your expectations? Wonderful. I'll see you next semester. Or... Uh, Okay, when you graduate from here, what like what is something that you think that would be a really beautiful culmination in you saying that you've accomplished your goal? Okay, maybe to make playing the Tomasi on your senior recital. Great. Wonderful. And then in that semester you're working on it. Okay, what is your short-term expectation? So when when you get done playing the recital, you you say, you can say, I played Tomasi. But then if you said I I want to play Tomasi flawlessly, okay, that that's a different conversation. Yeah. yeah. Interestingly, yeah, I, this is a to me a very interesting conversation because, oh gosh, I just forgot it. I just forgot what I was going to say. You're the worst. I was, I was, I was listening to you. Um, oh, it's this idea that like you know from when I was eighteen or nineteen years old, I was like, I really want to play in an orchestra, and that was true <laughs> at that point in time. But it's almost as if I said, well, when I was nineteen, I basically locked myself into a career, right? Like. It's it's totally fine to change your mind, but I didn't understand that. I was like, well, I guess I decided. And now it's it's almost <laughs> like, well, because I decided this, what if I change my mind? How do I know that that's because I it's right for me to change my mind? And how do I know it's just because it's really hard and I don't want to do it? So my answer <laughs> to that, and I'll be curious for yours, is everything is hard. Oh, my gosh, yes. Right? Everything is hard. So, like, if it's hard, that's not a good reason to stop doing something because you'll just switch into something else that's also really hard, except for you'll have to go back to the beginning. That is that is a conversation I deal with. It's, it's, it's almost like you – have you hung out with me all semester? It's like, <laughs> you know, a lot of the conversations I've had with students. Um, and that seems to be a thing that I'm dealing with right now with students of this certain age. It's It almost seems that when, when they are presented with something – and I'm only speaking in terms of the students I deal with in, in my institution on a day-to-day -day basis, when they're presented with either like a criticism that is not something they're looking for, like I, I didn't just praise them for, uh, this is a hyperbole, but like pooping all over the C major scale, right? I didn't, oh, that was so beautiful, but you missed almost every note. Um, <laughs> uh, because their mom said they, they, they played so wonderful. Or like you you get to have a conversation and it's like, okay, well, um, you, you really haven't shown signs of progress this semester, but but I really want to be a music performer. I want to play in the Utah Symphony. Um, okay, well, then then we need to talk about either one, how to reassess our practice schedule, or you might want to consider a different career path. And I mean, I think that is that is something that I have long, long conversations with our students here. And it it really is tough. It's tough because you have to change a lot of dreams sometimes. Like, Establishing dreams or, you know, the special Pee Wee's Playhouse word. What is it, Ryan? I can't remember what it is. Expectation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, establishing that word um, is, is, is something that students come into their program. It's the reason they major in music. It's the reason they, they started playing music in the first place. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's just a flat-out tough conversation. And 
yeah, I, it's, I still struggle with trying to have, figure out how to deal with that. Yeah, Because you're changing dreams. Yeah, one thing I really disagree with is this idea. I, you've heard probably people say like, well, if you could do anything else, you should do it because like music is really hard. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, yes. I, I just totally disagree with this notion. It's like I sort of started my own business and I've been trying to yep. figure out how to do that. That's way harder. Oh my gosh. Yes. Then the practicing part of thing. But practicing is just, just you just keep trying. And that's mm -hmm. the same thing of what I'm doing, except for I'm starting at the beginning right now, right? Yeah. And I'm older and it's I'm less of a kid being like, I'm just doing this thing that's fun. And it's more of like, I gotta figure this thing out. <laughs> and so it's it's hard. It's basically like everything is hard, you know, like to be yeah. true to excel at it at least. And this is kind of going back to me asking the question about being driven. And so yeah. I'm not sure that's a metric for anything, really. No. essentially i think people will say if it's hard it's like a good thing because it's probably you're gonna learn from it probably but yeah i think you're saying like revealing an understanding to somebody about what it is to be successful in a particular career or what a life in music uh, as a professional may look like and them sort of reflecting upon is that the life i want to live i think that's a different that's a different thing that's like uh yeah. i could be unhappy for the rest of my life because no one revealed to me this is what it's going to be like forever. Yeah. No, I I, th I think you're exactly right. I think th the reveal, pulling uh, pulling the curtain back to see what the life could be for you, if you don't find happiness in in your work, in your life after that reveal, it, it may not be something that you want to do. But however, music has become such a diverse world anyways you can still be a part of music, whether or not, yes, you're doing maybe your dream of, of, of playing an orchestra, but that, that's, not, that's not shutting you out of that lifestyle forever either. Like you can always go move to a certain town. You could start a community music school, not knowing that when you entered your music degree, that you would be a person that I, I want to run music business and then start a community music school, bringing in more kids to develop the same love for music that you did and got you going into majoring in band, you know, bringing back an old, old phrase from the early part of the podcast. And then on top of that, maybe you sub in your local symphony after that. So you're still doing kind of what you expected yourself to do, but you're, you're doing it in tandem with another aspect of music and impacting lives in a completely different way. Yeah, I think this part of the conversation is a really, it's a, I think this conversation is happening more and more, this idea that a career in music is not like two or three paths. Correct. But people are becoming more open to the idea of how you can interact with music in your life and possibly get paid for it. I think that's a, yep. a different way to see it. And um, I think it's a cool conversation because you realize like everyone can find a place to be rather than like, am I going to be good enough or am I going to have to leverage, you know, sacrifice these types of things to get into this career path that I may or may not like. So I think it's a good conversation people are having now. Yeah. It's it's exciting to see the creativity that the whole new generation behind us is coming up with. I mean, there there's so many unique like chamber ensembles that are being formed. There's so many unique uh, different avenues for how music is run in a business manner. Um, and it's it's just cool to try to find and work with students that see music in a different way, and then trying to find ways for them to, as you mentioned, get paid to do it. And I think it's a beautiful thing. I mean, it's it's. Sometimes it's hard for me to grasp what they're aiming at because, you know, in a lot of ways I have fallen, uh, followed the traditional path. You know, you go undergrad, you go master's, you go doctorate. Then you, for, when you have your doctorate, you go into higher ed. I've just done that um, because I wanted a traditional job in this. And uh, th thank goodness of me being driven that I was able and fortunate to, to fall into this position. But it's, it's really cool talking to 
younger students and be like, well, what do you want to do with your life? Well, I want to develop um, a cool new app that helps us do X, Y, and Z. It's like in music. It's like, oh, crap. I didn't even think about like the technological aspects and cultivation of stuff in music because that was not something we had. I think in you and I were even undergrad stuff. Like we barely had YouTube when we started our, we were doing our undergrad. Right, and yeah. now look at it. Yeah, right. For Pete's sakes. It's, it's, a, it's a whole different ballgame, bro. This is a slightly, it's like a bit of a tangential kind of question here. Um, but you it. seem like an open individual, so I'm kind of curious. What do you, what do you, what would you say is one thing about your teaching that when you communicate with students that you are like, this is how I will always feel. Like, I think this is so important. It's worked for me. I think it's super important. What's one thing like that? And what is one thing that you may have changed your mind on mm. having, you know, been, you, you, this is like your third or fourth year, right? This is my fifth year. Your fifth yeah. year, yeah. Since 2017, yeah. So in the five years you've been there, what's something that you kind of came in and it was like, this is how I would like things to be done, but like you've sort of changed your mind about maybe that wasn't the best way to do things. Uh, so I'll start with the positive one first. Um, the thing that I, in some ways, I will never change. And I think it, for me, it is, it is to the core of who I am. Um, and it's listen. So many students that I, I work with and I've interacted with since I, even before I got this job, a lot of students don't listen the, e either enough which, which in so many ways, majoring in music, you don't listen enough is shocking, but they don't listen the right way. They put music on and they have it in the background. They're like, yeah, I listened to my listening test this, this semester. But you miss the entire purpose of the listening test. And what I mean by that is I think something that really helped establish me as, as a musician and, and growing my musical ear and just kind of cultivating who I wanted to be as a trumpet player was ingraining a certain sound so hard in my head that every time I put the horn in my face, whether I was playing an F major scale, I was doing the opening of Tomasi, I was trying to emulate this sound that I had cultivated from listening to every trumpet player I could get my freaking hands on. And in so many ways, we, there's so many like idiomatic things that players do that kind of define them. Like, like there's a certain way Hokan articulates if you listen to his recordings. Uh, Phil Smith's vibrato or Chris Martin's vibrato or articulation that Phil Smith does or Ole Edvard Entens and the way he moves through technical passages. Like there, there's certain elements of their playing that if you put a recording on and didn't tell me what piece it was, but there was a trumpet soloist with a piano and orchestra, I'd be, oh, that's, that's this person because of this trait they do, right? And so that, that gets you a, an ear to those traits. And if you're sitting down and let's say you try to like, let's say you're playing pictures, for instance, and you listen to Phil Smith's excerpt CD and then you listen to him play it with a recording in the orchestra or you go see, you saw him live before he retired um, and you sit down, and you played it. And if you had listened to it enough to ingrain it into like your, your oral memory, your body is going to do things to accomplish as close as it can at that certain time to get that sound down. And a lot of times that's a very healthy way of playing because your body's naturally finding a way to create that resonance, to create the articulation. And obviously, like you need somebody to watch you if, if something is a little crazy. Um, pedagogically, you don't be like, oh, I, the reason I get this double C is I stand on one foot, I lean over to the right, <laughs> and, I, yeah, and, it, and it sounds just like Wayne Bergeron. Okay, question that, uh, but we'll talk about that later. Um, but I think I think establishing and growing this internal uh, Phil Smith talks about his inner Gabriel or like this 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 sound that you want to have happen, I think in so many ways grows us as a player far faster than sitting down and working on articulation. 
Because every time you touch the horn to your face, you're doing a checks and balances. You're like, all right, I just played this. Did it sound good? And then in your mind, you're going, articulation, did it match this? Nope. Did it, did it match the vibrato match this? Did the, the fullness and the sound, did the color match this? Like you, you have this giant checklist going through your head that you don't really have to go down and assess each individual thing. Your body just said, did it match? Yes or no? And if then also that sound is playing in your head as you're doing, it's very, very Arnold Jacobs, like Song of Wind. Mm -hmm. Have the song in your head, do that stuff, right? But if that sound is ringing so hard, your body's going to find a way to make that work. And I, I think that is something that I focus on every one of my students. We listen so much in our lessons. I try to play as much as I can for the students. And, I'm, and I tell them, I am not the 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 end result on this. There are people out there that can play this far better than me, and and so many people that play this in 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 my eyes flawlessly, right? But I think that is the biggest thing that I work off my students because I want them to develop that inner sound in their head. Because when they go to the practice room, if somebody's in there guiding them, I want it to be the sound that they have and the sound they want to accomplish. Your other question. I'm going to ask you a question about that. First. Oh, okay. Go all right. Go for it, bro. How do you how do you know or how do they know how do you encourage them to know what is right right air he, quotes he did fingers quotes finger quotes um you're exactly right because you can go on YouTube and type in Hindemith Sonata and see people who uh, are the same age as them playing the Hindemith Sonata and be like oh I like that recording is is that right for us to strive for but beyond uh, that sorry to even frame it even sure, sure, further sure. like let's say you know you. Let's say it's like, uh, yeah, the Hindemith. Well, there's like, a, I believe, a Winton recording and, um, mm. gosh, I'm just going to like right there. There's a Winton recording. Yeah. That's Let's use that as an example. That recording's awesome, but like, do I want to sound like Winton when I play that? I don't know. Probably I don't want to sound the same way Winton sounds, even though it's a great model of a sound, right? Sure. Like he doesn't have as, I mean, he sounds better than I do on it, but you know what I'm saying? Like maybe my model might be more orchestral in nature. So how do sure. we take all these great recordings and sift through them? And then how do we say to a student, this is the one, like a student, how do they go? Well, this is the one. I mean, other than like, I like this one, but is that the most accurate way for them to be able to determine which direction to head in based on this is what I like versus this is a stylistically appropriate sound for what it is that I want to do. And how do we balance that? I think in so many ways, the, the impact you play as a teacher on students is to guide them. And when I, when I have students listen, I will throw like, use, go back to the Hindemith. I will throw like six or seven recordings at them. And, and in so many ways, I'm like, pick pick two or three of these that you're really drawn to. Listen to the sound, listen to the articulation. Is there anything musically this person is doing that is kind of drawing you in? And then once they establish that, I have them usually talk about like, okay, what, what draws you to this? What things do you not like in that recording? Um, and that kind of helps to develop like this, this hodgepodge or like this ball of different, different traits that they can begin to start hashing things out. And obviously – in their lessons, I'm guiding them through like, you know, okay, this is not historically or like nationalistic uh, to this piece. You can't, you can't do this here, right? Uh, calm down your vibrato just a little bit. We don't get to do like um, uh, Rafael Mendes vibrato on the Hindmouth because that's not, it's not really appropriate for that, that piece. So you, I think my role as a teacher is to kind of guide them through that just a little bit. And obviously as you get older, you kind of understand these, these things and you end up solving these questions yourself. But I think... The more 
the the more examples that a student has to try to copy, the better they are to culminate and create this beautiful thing that comes together with all the traits that they value in a player or in what they want in their own sound. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it's. I mean, I'm not going to simplify what you said in a good way, but it's almost like this law of averages kind of idea. Like you're kind of you're taking all of these different things and piecing and pulling and saying, "Well, I like this and I like that," and you're sort of creating like an amalgamation of all of these great yep. players of what you want to sound like, and now you've sort of almost like created a new, a new thing, right? A new sound that you hear in your head that you like, and maybe even creating, yeah, yeah a unique personality of that. But there's nothing wrong with any one of those individual voices, and that's the thing because every per so it's in so many ways it's kind of like like speaking. I've, I've said this in multiple multiple places where it's like, Ryan, you would not want to learn French from me. Like, parlez-vous français. Now say it back. If you went to France and spoke spoke that, it would be a little rough for you, right? Like, it would be like, what what are you doing? But it, it's, in so many ways, it's how we speak. So you're learning how to speak from these different people who speak fluently in our language, the trumpet language, and you're figuring out how to manipulate the vowels and and the the tongue shapes and st- all the, all these different things that make their fluency in our language become a part of your fluency in your own language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. And I mean, it's fine to have preferences about like, oh, I like this person's sound, but I like, I don't like, like you said, their vibrato as much, or I like this person's articulation, but you know, maybe their sound isn't quite as full as I would like or whatever, right? Like it's fine. 100%. It's fine to totally, to, to do that. And it's, it's still like, even kind of like what I said about, you know, Winton a second ago, it's like, there's no denying that Winton's like the greatest trumpet player that's ever lived. You know what I mean? Sure, there's no yeah. denying that. But um, I may, you know, there's a like a even even like a person holding a German like a rotary trumpet. That's a you know like that might be a more stylistically appropriate just because it's like their thing, right? So um, I think it's fine to make some of these distinctions within yourself and to say this is what I like and. Um, this is what I want to sound like. And then maybe you're right and maybe you're wrong and you reassess like we talked about and you kind of move in that direction. And yeah, I think it's a fair, I think it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, unfortunately there's a lot of trial and error involved in that and it takes time to do that. It's not just going to happen immediately. But that's when we go back to establishing like expectations. Woo! (laughs) Um, because, because you have to understand, okay, just because I bought for like I bought the Phil Smith collection from New York Phil and I'm playing the Hey to this this the next week or something. I'm I'm not, but like but like I'm gonna sit down and listen to it. Okay, now that I've sat down and listened to it, do I sound like Phil Smith? No. No, you have to establish expectations and what you were trying to get from listening to that recording and ingraining that sound to what you're able to do. I mean I I listen my person is is Phil Smith. Like Phil Smith the like the prime of his career is a soloist. Like those are the traits that I try to emulate in my playing. I know it's very cliche because a lot of other term players around the world do the same thing. Um, but that's a voice that speaks to me. And in so many ways, like I can go through different recordings and say, oh, this minute, this timestamp, I want that articulation in that range, whether it be on this piece or a different piece at all. Oh, I want this vibrato and this slur, this specific slur right here. I want to have that sound. Like, and that's just something that I, that I do, but that's something I try to get my students to do as well. It's interesting. When you're saying, make, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, it's a very interesting thing you say, like, there's a recording of Tim Morrison playing Quiet City. Yeah. And, I mean, I love that recording of it, but specifically the way he slurs, it's like, I, that, it's almost like I want the way he slurs from that recording. Like, I would love to sound like him in general, but like specifically, yeah, his slurs are like, if I, if I took nothing else, 
It's just I like, think his E his E to high A slur in the JFK solo, the the lyrical yeah, one in yeah. the middle, like that that something for some reason that that one I always get like chills and I just hear that single slur. I'm like ah, I was like oh yeah totally oh that's that's cash money. Uh, all right. Sorry, I derailed you just to kind of get a little bit deeper into how somebody would uh, listen and develop that sound. What's something you've changed your mind on in the last five years or so? Most of my my career, uh, a career as a student and and career as an early professional, I have not really established like a defined like warm up, and I've not established a defined like fundamentals routine that I need for myself. Um, and I am changing that because one, I I'm getting older. I mean, I'm starting to, to feel the effects of me just getting older and having the impacts of playing hit me. Um, but at the same time, I need to make sure that I'm walking my students through the same thing. Um, and instead of, instead of just like expecting them or showing them things they need to work on fundamentally for each piece we work on, um, this may be a hot topic, but like a lot of times what I do with my students is we select the repertoire that we're going for. Like say we're doing, doing for Pete's sakes, like petite piece concertante, right? Um, and then we do a tree ups, upside down tree about the fundamentals that it needs to be accomplished to make that piece work. Some people do the different way. You start the fundamentals and you work towards the piece, right? It's, it's. There's validity in both. I just do it where you have your solo piece and why do we do this? Because I, I like I like the word why a lot. And I ask my students that question a lot, a, a lot, a lot, a lot. Because I want to understand why we're doing these choices, why, why I'm asking them to do it in this format, why we're using this specific etude or this fundamental book, why are we doing, um, for Pete's sakes, Goldman number one. Like, mm-hmm. why are we doing this? Well, it's to focus on X. It's to focus on this. And for me to start helping myself establish a more fundamental routine and a warm-up routine, I'm helping them to understand, hey, even though we're doing this upside-down tree, if you will, the like learning tree, um, it's to help you grow and keep the traits in your playing that are more consistent. So, I mean, that is something that has been extremely new to me in the past two or three years. Um, but I think it's 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 been beneficial to a lot of my students as well because a lot of them come in and they don't know what what it means to practice, what it means to do X, Y, and Z, and it's just been it's been a lot of fun trying to to work on the same thing they're doing, establishing this 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 routine, if you will, uh, that can be very flexible again, but it's just establishing this consistent thing that you do to establish. I said establish a lot, sorry, to uh, to integrate this this wonderful pathway. Uh, and and check off a lot of things in your own personal playing that you're trying to do. This brings up an interesting point. You know, you are a younger player, um, and obviously I am too. And I feel like I'm learning a whole bunch of stuff and and integrating, establishing um, things in my own playing. Uh, what's that like for you as a younger player working with you know students who are not? I mean, they're you know we're like ten years you know or more now, but yeah. apart, but. Just the idea of like not you're encouraging these students how to grow and and trying to explain that kind of thing, but it's also like we have growth left to do, and so sometimes I mean that's going to be the case with everybody, but I imagine for some people there can be a bit of like a imposter syndrome type thing going on of like well who am I to tell these people how to grow when I have so many problems in my own thing, and I'm curious if you've dealt with that, what you do, how to deal with that, or if you don't deal with that, how have what's your perspective to kind of have avoided that? I 
I said earlier, I try to model a lot for my students. And I think because we have all the way from like an undergrad or a minor in music through bachelor's, through master's or doctorate, I, I feel this apparent need to always be able to model for any student that comes in my office, whether no matter if it's like we're playing uh, the Hidas or the Lovelock Concerto all the way down to playing like Mary Had a Little Lamb, if, if, if you will. Um, and so like not necessarily a sense of imposter syndrome, but this 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 overwhelming personal weight of you need to be able to show your students that you can do this because you're asking them to do it too. Um, and that's something that I've, I've always dealt with in my own personal like abilities as a teacher. Like I, I question my teaching a lot. I'm not saying in a negative way, but I always question, am I doing the right thing for my students? Um, and maybe that's a little bit of an imposter syndrome because I, I want to be the best teacher I can for them. And I'm constantly asking, like, how do you do this? Or I have someone come work with a student that I'm having a little bit of trouble like diagnosing or trying to figure out. Um, it's, it's wonderful being here in Utah because Jason Bergman's just down, down the street from us at BYU. And like, if a student have an issue, he's a more veteran teacher than I am. And he's a wonderful teacher. And I've been like, Jason, can you look at this student and see what you think? Give me some insight. Um, and it's been, it's been really nice to hear some feedback from him because sometimes I'll send a student to him and just have him look at him and he'd be like, nope, there's, there's nothing wrong. They just need to do this. And it, it makes me feel good to know that I didn't like misassess something or misdiagnose or I put a student on a wrong path. Um, but yeah, maybe, maybe you're right. I, there, maybe it's a little bit of imposter syndrome that comes with it. But uh, what was your question, Ryan? I was, I was so beat up and like me just like feeling bad about myself sometimes. There you go. Look at that guy. It was that. It was just about imposter syndrome and how you sort of. Uh, manage because you are you are an authority for them. Like you are the teacher, you were hired for a reason. Yep. It's not like it was yep. an accident, but you know, like sometimes it can. You know, I would say the same thing if I were hired to play in the New York Philharmonic or the Chicago Symphony or something like that. I'm sure I would deal with this idea that like, you know, uh, am I qualified to do this? And it's like I know that I'm able to play the trumpet really well, and I'm sure there would be a learning curve to what do they do and how do I fit in and how do I whatever. But I'm, you know, it can be easy to feel like when you're in a new scenario, um, and like I said, especially when we are young and still learning, coaching for you younger yeah. and teaching younger students, um, as opposed to you know you're older, you've just taught that many more, like just dealing with like, you know, this idea that your mind might change on some things, you might decide, totally. oh, I did this differently, but now we're going to do it this way, and just being open to that versus like I have to be an authority so I can't show weakness, kind of thing. That is something that I, that I, I, I try, I try to be really open with my students. Like I, I show them. Sometimes I'm like, okay, I don't know what what's going on inside your mouth or like what's going on with your playing, but I'm going to help you find out. And I and I think. Getting feedback from my students, they value that, that I'm really open about what um, what I feel I'm confident in doing with them and working through them to help them find that answer. Um, but yeah, that's that that is something that I that I do deal with a lot. I mean, I you're right, I'm a young teacher. I have not experienced everything that a student's gonna bring to my doorstep. Um, and I've been I've been blessed in a lot of ways that I was set up in a really good manner in my undergraduate and my my heck, even my middle school time. Where the the mouthpiece placement mouthpiece placement is fine, articulation's always been good. Um, I didn't really have to struggle with range too much. Like it's been something that's been pretty natural for me. And sometimes when students come in with like some variation of a difficult thing that I have been really blessed with, uh, 
it's hard to diagnose them because like in so many ways, obviously when you are, you're dealing with something bad in your own playing, you, you hyper-focus on it and you assess what you're doing, right? Um, and in that process, you learn how to fix it and you have a beautiful avenue on how to fix that process. But when you're not given the opportunity to work on it or like really refine it when you're younger, or even now that when you get older, you're trying to refine something where you're a little more attuned to what the step-by-step process is, it makes teaching harder. And I, I think I I have had to become okay with sometimes saying, I don't know how to fix that right now. Let me talk to other professionals and colleagues that I know to collaborate on how to fix this. I mean, and I and I started using the example as like, yes, I am Dr. Shelton, right? But I want you to think of me kind of like your general practitioner, right? You're going to go to me with a cold. We're going to see each other like, you know, for your checkups like once a week for your, like, your lesson. I'm going to assign you some medicine. You're going to take that medicine the week. You're going to come back and tell me how good that medicine was, right? But there are certain people in our profession that in a lot of ways have a hyper-focused research area and like, okay, well, you're having a hard time with, let's say, endurance. Okay, well, you're going to go see this one person because, yes, they're, they're a general practitioner, but they might have a specialty in, 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 in embouchure setup and stuff like that. And so it's it's been kind of fun treating and in, in, in my own mind thinking about it like that, like like a real medical doctor. It's like I'm sure people come to me like for articulation stuff. Like how do you how do you get your articulation thing like that? Why well, do this that and the other? And that's kind of the thing that people reach out to me for. Um, but it's I don't know. It's kind of enlightening and kind of like it takes a little bit of the stress and the the kind of like the the pressure that I put on myself to be a really good teacher for my students. It helps take it away a little bit. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, it's it's so cool. You're it, it sounds like the opposite of being dogmatic to the point of like you're like acknowledging that it's possibly going to take a village, you know. And you know, you're obviously probably learning along the way from these people yes. and so you're, you know, it's also, you know, helping your pool uh, of knowledge as it is, but that's such, such a great attitude. You know, I read somewhere where it, it talked about like a teacher that is willing to say like, I don't know, but I will go find out. It's just in general, more trustworthy with the things that they say, these are the things that I do know, because if they didn't, <laughs> they would say, I don't know. As opposed to like, I'm just going to make something up. It's like, well, how do I know even the things they think they are an expert in? Are they actually an expert? But if you're yeah, willing to say, I don't know, that gives more credibility to when you say, I do know. And I think that's a really important, I mean, everybody should ideally be always be willing to say like, I don't know the answer to that question. Cause it also means, well, then I just have the opportunity to learn, but I can, I I've not been like that my whole life. You know what I mean? Like I, there's been times where I'm just like, I'm going to fake it. And cause I don't want to seem like I don't know what I'm doing. So like, I, sure. I'm no one to talk, you know? I feel like for me saying that I don't know, as you said, like students trust you more. I mean, students come to my program to study with me. In, in so many ways. I mean, that's kind of the, the, the way it is for all applied teachers all across the country. The students are drawn to those programs, either for the name of the school, the ensemble experience they get, or to study with that particular private teacher, right? And I, there's a lot of responsibility that sits on my shoulders because a student coming into music obviously has a passion and a love to do this, right? Whether it be for a career or to just have music be a part of their life. And if, let's say there's an embouchure issue, for instance, like if I start having the mentality of like, I don't know, like deep down inside, and I just start dabbling and doing stuff to the embouchure, that that could be extremely detrimental to that person's ability to have trumpet be an expressive tool in their life. And then that weight is on me. I screwed that person up because I was too stubborn of a person to ask for help. And that that hurts me more just thinking about that, that I, I was the person that ruined this person's 
musical career or love in music because I I was too dumb not to ask. Mm. Yeah, I I think it's that makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's a really cool perspective. I'm glad you shared it. I hope it's if there's you know people who are teaching and they struggle with that. I hopefully that's a perspective that can help them, but also just for students to like know that you know. It's not an indictment even on the teacher's ability to, to, if they don't know literally everything, it doesn't make them any less or more effective, you know, and especially like you're talking about like having developed a network of people that can help. I mean, I I didn't know anything about amateurs for a really long time. And then I had a student that uh, was struggling and I went to my friend Demandre at at Sanford and he just explained to me why you would change an amateur quickly. And I was like, (laughs) I literally like today I learned how to like understand why you would change an amateur before that I had no idea. So <laughs> yeah, like you're saying, it's just, we all have various things that we deal with in our own playing. We learn how to fix those and diagnose those things. And then especially through teaching, it's just going to be a slow process of encountering problems and learning how to deal with them. So it's even managing expectation in that regard as well. Ah. Yeah. Right. So it makes sense. I appreciate, uh, yeah, I appreciate that. Um, are there any sort of final thoughts that you uh I mean it feels like we could talk for a while, but this seems like a good place to to bring it down yeah, for mean, a future episode. But uh is there anything else that you kind of want to share that's uh super important to you and you wanna throw out there? I mean, I th- I think students in a lot of ways should not be afraid to put themselves out there. I mean, we live in this giant world of like media like soaking our lives up. And I think in a lot of ways it's that students are afraid to be vulnerable. And I think for a student to, to be vulnerable, and I'm only speaking kind of on the music side of stuff, like put yourself out there a little bit because in so many ways you displaying a recording that you're okay with, but you know, there's fault, there's faults in it. Um, that gives you, at least while you're recording it, knowing that, okay, I'm, okay, I'm going to sit down. I'm going to play Mahler five, like the, the opening of Mahler five. And no matter what happens, I'm going to post it. And that that gives you a sense of like stage fright, right? So you're practicing stage fright, whether or not you're actually sitting on a stage performing for public. You know, and you have this expectation wow, um, that you are going to post it, and people potentially are going to see it. People may comment on it, and you have to be okay with the comments you receive. Knowing knowing the trumpet community as a whole, there's going to be a lot of positive support. People are going to be, oh, this is great. Do this, that, and the other. And you're going to have some conflicting things, but students should always make sure they're going back to their teachers and and kind of talking about those things before they completely implement them. Um, Some people may encounter some negative thoughts. But again, at the end of the day, you need to set your expectations. You didn't meet an expectation. That's okay. You're totally cool. You, You put yourself out there. You took a step on the journey of you getting better, and you stubbed your toe a little bit. Yeah, but you didn't fall. Um, people may give you comments that that are, are not satisfying to you, and it's okay because music is is a consumable thing, uh, and people are very subjective about it. So one person's interpretation of the opening of Mahler Five may differ from another person's interpretation of what it should be, um, and you have to be okay with that. So I think at the end of the day, I think students need to make sure that they're okay with their own ability to to take criticism. Your face is so bright right now. Oh so my bright. gosh. A tab in the background of my computer just started talking. I love it. I didn't hear anything. Yeah, so we're good. yeah. Sorry. Um, 
Yeah, no, I think you're, I mean, I think you're right. And it's something I try to, I've had very few people ask me about this, but something I try to encourage them to do is like framing is everything. So if you're saying, here is this definitive recording of Mahler 5, <laughs> and you post something that's, you know, got errors in it and things like that, like you might get more negative feedback than you want. But if Correct. you say like, I've been practicing this for the past like two weeks and you know, it's, I recognize it's not perfect, but I'm happy with, I think it's very representative of me right now. And yeah. I feel like that's worth sharing. Yeah. I think framing I it that way is a way different experience for people digesting it. than, like I said, then being like, here's the defense. This is better than Phil Smith. You know, it's like, you're just, I delusional. mean, I'm sitting here talking to the guy who established like this beautiful, like practice routine and watching you, like watching you grow as a musician prepping for auditions you've done. I mean, even on Facebook, like during the pandemic, I posted videos of me just like practicing stuff in stairwells, but also like learning how to do, um, what do you call it? Like learning how to like use logic and dive into that digital stuff. And that was fun. Yeah. There's things on there that are not great. And I go back now and be like, Oh, that sucked. And I totally do it differently then. But like, it was a journey. I, I, now I can go back and see, Oh man, that's, I didn't know how to fix that then in logic. And now I know, now I know how to do mm -hmm. it. And it's, it's kind of fun seeing your growth that way too. So yeah, I completely agree. Yeah. This is, do you ever go back and listen to your Chicago symphony stuff? Like, and listen to some of the excerpts you played and you're like, man, that, Man, I, I, I can play this so much better now. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, burnt, I burnt the files. No, uh, I, I have them. not uh, gone back and listened to any of that, mostly because there are other things I would choose to do with my time at this point. <laughs> but that's, it'd be an interesting, an interesting just thing to do, I guess. Because um, I'm sure like your interpretation of some things could change slightly. Obviously, there's, there's a standard format for it. But at the same time, like you've grown as a player ever since you started that process. And so yeah. it, it might be kind of nice for you to see the change in expectations, like a comedy routine. We come back to the very, very first comic. Um, but like the change in what's developed in your own playing since you started that journey. Yeah. Interestingly though, um, I like know that I've gotten better over the pandemic. Sure. I did. There were some very specific things that I worked on fundamentally over the pandemic. And I had basically how I, f and I use what, we would call a rate of perceived exertion metric, right? Where, you know, there's objective metrics. Like this month I played Goldman one at 100 beats per minute. Next month at the same quality, I played it at 104. Like that's objective progress, right? Correct, correct. Rate of perceived exertion is like, I sound about the same, but it's significantly easier or more consistent to produce now than it was before. That's a measure, a metric of progress as well. And it's very interesting because like my job feels easier now. I'm more consistent. I don't get tired as much. Even when I'm tired, I'm able to produce sound the same way. Like it's very clear to me and maybe it's, you know, Nobody else is paying attention, which is fine. But yeah. I think the trumpet world knows. They've, they've watched you grow. Yeah. You, you are such a BA, dude. <laughs> Thanks. Um, but, you know, the it's interesting because it's very, it's not just like motivating in the sense, it is motivating, but the more importantly, what it is, is evidence that it's possible yes. to get better. And I think I was stuck in this place of wondering if that was going to happen for a little while. Like, is it like, have I sort of, maxed out have I, I i didn't believe i had hit a genetic limit so to speak but it's like i don't know how i don't know what i need to do to like see progress and move closer like if i said hokan is an inspiration to me i didn't have the tools necessary to be able to like actually make some 
some progress towards that goal. And sure. that's what's so exciting is I, I don't sound anything like Hokan. And like I was literally today was playing along with something he he did and it was just demoralizing. It's like as much progress as I feel like I've made, he's just like, <laughs> there's so long to go. But yeah, that the idea that progress is possible is what more or less keeps me going is like, oh, maybe it's not today, but like maybe tomorrow, like maybe tomorrow things will click or maybe in three months or six months, you know? So that is that idea. It's not in the exact way you described it, but it certainly sure. has been happening. And that's one of the, that's like kind of one of the nice things about having a record of, of posting for a while now is like, you can go back and, you know, that's one of the values like you were talking about of just getting something out there, just posting it because it's like, at, you know, a year from now, you'll look back and be like, whoa, like I've yeah, actually made totally. progress, objective progress. Yeah. And that's, I showed one of my students the other day, their audition video into the program because they were just down themselves. So like, let me show you this. And I, I, I pulled up the digital recording that I took of their audition. Um, and they're like, holy crap, I have improved. It's like, yes, you yeah, have. Yeah, you, yeah. you don't, you don't see it over the four years you've been here. Yeah, for sure. But yeah. It, but it's a beautiful thing to see progress like that. Uh, well, if people are interested in, uh, they're just like, you know, Hayden sounds hilarious. I want to talk to like him. Like my people. I, lo I love that you shift into my accent when you do this. Too. <laughs> but you're from Alabama, so yeah. Yeah, if they are, basically, if anybody wants to reach out to you, find out more about the program or anything like that, how would people find you so they can do that? You guys can hit me up on Facebook. It's just Payton Shelton, S-A-T-L-T-U-N is my last name. My Payton is not spelled like the quarterback, so don't I don't make as much money as Peyton Manning used to. It's P-E-Y-D-E-N. Uh, and the same spelling for Payton.Shelton at Utah.edu is my email address. Yeah, so check him out there. I'll leave uh, at least your email address in the uh, in the uh, description. And um, if you need to get in touch with me, you can do that at that'snotspit.com or that's not spit at Facebook and Instagram. If you enjoyed this episode, if you laughed, uh, if you did not laugh, please give you it better a laugh. <laughs> you better laugh. <laughs> please leave a rating and a review. On iTunes, and don't forget to share this on social media. Uh, Peyton, I really appreciate it. This is a blast for me to, to chat with you for a little bit. I appreciate you giving me your time. Thanks for letting me be part of the show. I love this dude. Yeah. Uh, I want to thank Brandon Yoakum for his work on mastering this episode of the podcast. Woo! And most of all, I would like to thank you for listening. Stay strong, be kind to yourself, never stop growing, and we'll see you next time.